Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Insider. I'm your host, Dr. Kenan Omertag. With me, as always, is my co-host, Corey French, fourth-year medical student at Washington University. Um, today, we have a special guest, Dr. Elise Everett. She's an instructor in the Department of Medicine and at the Department of Neurology. She's got dual appointments. Um, so she's here with us to talk a little bit about how she got to where she is and how um, her, her daily life intersects with um, OBGYN and women's health. So welcome, Dr. Everett. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. So let's get right to it. I, I mean, how did you, I mean, you've got these dual appointments. That's, that's kind of unique. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yes. So I took a, I took an interesting path to get to where I am right now. I started um, in undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh with a plan to go to med school. And then I quickly was like, eh, that's going to take too much time and too much money. And I decided to go to occupational therapy school instead, which is what I did. I started in my master's program at Pitt. And I quickly realized that, well, I love OT and I totally respect it. It's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I decided to go back to the original med school plan and spend even more time and money uh, <laughs> to <laughs> get my uh, prerequisites done, finish my master's degree, apply to, to med school. And I was lucky enough to get into WashU. Uh, so I came here. And when I got here, I already kind of knew that I liked neurology, all of the brain related courses that I had taken through my my six years, I had been very loved and, and thought that there was super interesting. So I kind of went through the first two years with that thinking. And then I got to third year, I did my neurology rotation with one within one day, I was like, Oh, this is what I'm doing I love this. It's amazing. This is this fits perfectly with me. At the same time, throughout third year and fourth year, I also realized that I really, really enjoyed and felt fulfilled by um, goals of care conversations and breaking bad news conversations and really getting to know patients and families on a, on a really deep level and talk with them about their care and more than just a, you know, I'm going to prescribe you this medication and discharge you on this day sort of thing. Um, so I took all the opportunities I could during med school to get involved in those conversations. I did a palliative care elective. And when I, I realized that at the end of the day, neurology has a lot of a lot of problems that we can't fix and will potentially eventually kill people. So it's actually a really good mix to do palliative care and neurology, even though it's not the most normal path to get to palliative care. Um, so that was what I did. I what did my adult neurology residency, and then I did a palliative care fellowship, all of it at WashU because I married an MD PhD student. So we, we kind of got <laughs> stuck in St. Louis, but that's okay. Cause I love it here. Um, and, and now I am an instructor and I am dual appointed to neurology and to medicine. I'm in the 80% in the division of palliative care and 20% in neurology. I have a very um, odd mix of what I do with my time that kind of spans a lot of different things, but I'm very happy with where I am and what I'm doing. Wow. So you really get to do sort of the best of both worlds from, from all of your interests from medical school. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm just I'm so curious um, when it comes to thinking about going into palliative care from neurology. I know you said it's not like the most that's not the most typical path. Is did you find that you know programs were receptive to that? Yes, actually, uh, it's really so. The, the normal way is to go through medicine or family medicine, um, but as I've learned, 
they the people who do palliative care and hospice work who are who are trained that way actually have a lot of um, discomfort in dealing with neurologic issues at the end of life because the way that they're treated and the way that you talk to family and talk about prognostication and do symptom management is, is so, so different from what you're doing from the medical side, with usually with the oncology patients. Um, and you're, we're using medications that no one knows about. And, and it's so they they love the fact that I'm a neurologist. I, I spend a lot of time answering questions about neurology from the other people in the division, which is wonderful. So yeah, no, they're definitely open to it. And there is a very small but growing population of neuropalliative care doctors around the country that I'm I'm hooked in with. So it's good. How how has your the background in occupational therapy kind of helped in your in your role? Oh, it's totally helped. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of neurologic issues that end up requiring rehab in one way or another. Um, And I started a neuropathic over the summer in which I'm seeing mostly ALS patients and sometimes um, people with Parkinson's or other movement disorders. And what's beautiful about it is that I really actually get to use my 11 years of postgraduate training (laughs) by with I get to be a neurologist, I get to be a palliative care doctor, and I get to be an occupational therapist. So I am talking to people about, you know, what to expect in their disease progression and what the treatment options are. I'm talking to them about their goals of care. Do they want a trach? Do they want a G-tube? When's the time to go on to hospice? And I'm also talking to them about different strategies and equipment that they can use around the house to help them and their family take care of them the best they can. So it's, it's really, really awesome. What can, can you, I want to expand on this a little bit, Elise, what, tell me about what it was that what do you think? Why did you get? Why were you attracted to these end of life discussions? Is it the complexity? Was there something intellectual, like gratif- intellectually stimulating about how to navigate those conversations? What was it? Uh, what is it about those conversations, and or that that, that attracted you? Yeah, yeah. So. Occupational therapy is a little bit of a of a squishier kind of hippie occupation. It's all about the the whole patient and the holistic care and knowing everything about them. So I kind of approach patients from that aspect to begin with. Mm-hmm. And for me, I didn't I didn't go to medical school with the usual thing of like I want to fix people, I want to cure people. I went to medical school because I wanted to help people, and helping does not always mean fixing. Right. In a lot of places in medicine, helping means walking with you through this journey of your disease process and helping you in whatever way I can and helping your family in whatever way I can before you get to the eventual end and trying to make the path as smooth and comfortable as possible. Um, And it's just, there's, for me, there's just so, so much value in spending an hour talking to a patient with ALS and their family and getting to know who their family are and what their hobbies are and what they like to watch on TV and then getting into the the stuff about what is quality of life to you what 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 is good good enough for you and what's not good enough for you and how can we take those feelings and turn them into a plan of care and it's i i think in this country especially we we really really struggle with end of life care we tend to just put people in the cogwheel of medicine and icu and hospitalizations and intubation and go 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 until the very very last moment when we're like oh we should we should probably talk to their family about this. <laughs> My goal is to is to not do that. My goal is I want these people to 
be able to go through their disease process and understand what's going on, know what the expectations are for the future, and hopefully be able to prevent those horrible months-long hospitalizations where they're getting intubated and no one's ever asked them if they wanted a trach before, and then their family's having to make the decision without knowing what they want, and, and it's just horribly devastating for everyone. So being able to to help people stay at home and stay comfortable and, and do things that are in line with their wishes is, is really fulfilling for me. Let me ask you one other follow-up here. So most people's introduction in this country, and even in, you know, before, even in, sometimes in medical school, um, the introduction is through some, you know, media case of end of life. And for me, it was Nancy Cruzan. For others, it might have been Terry Schiavo. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what do you, what was, what do you remember as kind of your first introduction in the, in, in the, I guess, press um, or, you know, Nancy Cruzan um, was, is, was a Missourian. So that case carries a lot of memory. Do you have memories of those cases? And what were they? You know, I actually don't have any particularly strong. I mean, those things were kind of happening, but I, I don't know that I was particularly in tune to them going on. It really wasn't until I was kind of up close and personal with people during third year where I was really introduced to the because obviously Barnes is a is a hospital where very, very, very sick people are. Um, mm -hmm. And and so seeing things firsthand that way was kind of where I had my first introduction to these end of life issues. So, you know, I, I think you talked a little bit about how you split your time between I think you said about 80 percent palliative care and 20 percent neurology. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering what a typical day looks like for you then in that setting. Yes. Yeah, so I do not have a typical day. I, I <laughs> wear a lot of different hats, as it were, I do a, a lot of part time jobs, basically. So um, my week is split up. I do one day a week in a general neurology clinic uh, in which I see mostly headaches and some seizures, Parkinson's, that, that sort of stuff. And then I do two half days a week of my neuropalliative clinic, which, like I said, is uh, ALS and movement disorders mostly. And then I do two half days a week doing the general palliative care outpatient clinic, mm -hmm. um, which is the fellows do. And it's more um, usually oncologic diagnoses. And then, uh, I do a couple weeks a year on the inpatient palliative care consult service. And, uh, just next week, yay, I will be starting at the VA, um, mm. two days a month, um, doing their ALS clinic palliative care. Okay. So mostly an outpatient service that you, that you operate on. Yes. I, I have come to realize over the past couple of years that I am much more of an outpatient doctor than an inpatient doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. What, what is that? I think for a lot of second year medical students, they don't really have much of a concept yet of why a person might like one or the other. Yeah. And, and the thing is with the way that medical training is set up both in med school and in residency, you spend the vast majority of your time in the hospital and you don't really get to experience outpatient. So it wasn't until I really started doing it that I realized that I, how much I, I loved it. And for me, the difference is I love the, the long-term relationships with people. I don't want to just meet them 
and have them on my service for a couple of days and then discharge them and never see them again. I really value the the relationships that I develop over time and getting to know their 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 families and being able to ask them how their grandkids are doing when I see them again. Uh, and that is really only something that can happen on an outpatient basis. And I also just like that there's less kind of pressure to to get things done. Where inpatient, you're just your goal is always putting in the next set of orders and getting in the next diagnostic test and finishing your notes and your discharge summaries and all that. Whereas outpatient is kind of more casual if you actually have time to just chat and really think about what the options are for how you want to do things. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I appreciate about it. And do you find that, you know, even on your days where you're in your non, just your, your standard neurological clinic and not your neuropalliative care clinic, that your, your palliative care helps inform the way that you um, approach these patients? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, I, I think that I, I have trouble turning off my palliative care self, even when I'm not doing palliative care. And so I spend, I still spend a lot of time just getting to know even my headache patients and, and what their jobs are and, and what their stresses are going on at the time and how their headaches are affecting their quality of life. And when I see my Parkinson's patients, I will accidentally start talking about advanced care planning stuff because I just can't help myself. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm there printing out and signing that out of hospital DNR order in neurology clinic, which is not super normal. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so they definitely overlap and intersect even when I don't necessarily mean them to. So Elise, we've kind of talked about kind of how you got to where you are. What's a typical day like? What is something, I mean, what would you describe as your passion right now that you're kind of working on or focused on? I think you can probably tell that my passion is <laughs> neurodegenerative <laughs> disorders at the end of life. Uh, so it's particularly ALS is, is kind of my favorite um, diagnosis to see right now. And obviously it's a horrible, devastating disease that, that really, really affects patients and their entire families. Um, and and we don't we don't have a cure for it. And although there is millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent every year on on trying to do something for it, we haven't gotten particularly far in that. Uh, and so it's it's all about palliative care and it's all about helping their, your families and, and your patient in whatever way you can um, to, to make things better for them as they're going through this terrible disease. So that's that's what I really love. And plus, no one else wants to do it. So. So it works out very nicely. <laughs> so I'm wondering, I know, especially with ALS, one of the, the biggest decisions for those patients is about um, getting a trach and having assistance with ventilation. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how you approach that discussion as a palliative care physician. Yeah. So the important thing about these discussions is that you have to, in a lot of cases, have to start pretty much as soon as they get diagnosed and then you have to kind of repeat the conversations over again. And so it's all about explaining what what's going to happen in the future because, uh, you know, ALS isn't super common. So most people don't know someone who had it and don't know what it, what it's going to look like. And so it's really important to accurately describe what's going to happen to them in the future, that they're at some point, they're, um, respiratory weakness is going to happen and they're going to have trouble breathing. And at some point they'll get started on non-invasive ventilation. And then typically they start using it just at night and then more and more and more during the day. And then at some point um, they may get to a point where even that's not enough or that's so uncomfortable for them that they, 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 
don't want to have to do that anymore. And then you explain what a trike is and what that process looks like. And, and then what's really, really important to talk about is what life is going to look like afterwards, because going from continuous non-invasive ventilation to a trach doesn't, doesn't seem like it should be hugely different, but it is hugely different. The care needs go up much more. People really need 24-7 care that not just their spouse is able to provide. And a lot of people actually end up having to get um, placed in nursing homes after they get a trach just because they can't be managed at home. Mm. Unfortunately, the insurance systems in America don't really pay for in-home private care. Uh, and so unless you are lucky enough to have a really big and caring family or a lot of money, you just can't afford the in-home care. And, and so really, really talking about quality of life and what things are going to look like for them afterwards is important. And then one other thing that I really hammer on is where your end point is, because if you do decide to go the trach route, it's very likely that you're going to get to a point where you're almost completely or completely locked in and not able to communicate. And so we need to know ahead of time and we need to talk about ahead of time when is not good enough for you. Mm. When, when is that point going to be where you don't want us to continue keeping you alive? Because with a trach and a G-tube, we can keep people going for a while. Mm. So, and, and it often these are conversations that happen over more than one appointment because it's just a lot of information and a lot of thinking and I try to do you know close follow-ups with people like in a week or two or three to let them talk with their family and think about things and decide what more questions they have before we kind of go up about it again do you have a do you have a pace of how those visits are scheduled or like new diagnosis or new patient with ALS um, or do they kind of just go as needed to the patient's pace? of when they want to have that conversation? Or do you kind of dictate that pace a little bit up It's kind of vaguely. It, it varies person by person. There are some people who, as soon as they get the diagnosis, they are asking, how long do I have? What's going to happen to me? What do I need to start thinking about right now? And they just, I mean, I've had people that within five minutes of meeting me, they're asking me about right to die laws. And we're just like jumping straight into it. Gotcha. And then there's other people who are the exact opposite and don't want to talk about the future and don't want to know about it. And in those cases, yeah, I do. I do gently and lovingly, but I, I do have to kind of force them to talk about it. And I do it, I do it very gently and I do it slower. But at the end of the day, I tell them the only way that we're going to be able to, to know what you want and to give you the quality of life that we can and to respect you as a person and, and make sure that we're doing everything that you want done is for us to talk about it. So we're just going to have to talk about it. Mm, yeah. Have you ever had a patient ask you about organ donation at end of life? Uh, actually, no, that's never come up. Usually um, the, the ALS center here, actually a lot of our neurology subspecialties are big believers in um, body or brain donation mm -hmm. um, after death. And so they've actually usually been talked about by the, they have that talked about with the neurologists before they come to me. You know, we talked a lot about neurodegenerative disorders, ALS, um, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious how you in your daily practice as a neurologist and as a palliative care physician encounter reproductive health care. Yeah. So it doesn't come up so much in the in the palliative care side, although there are certainly your 
very unfortunate cases of women in their 30s with ALS. Um, but generally speaking, where I come across it is in my outpatient general neurology clinic. Um, so I see mostly headache right now is what I'm seeing. And as it turns out, headaches are more common in women and their incidence peak is in the 20s to the 40s. So I see a whole heck of a lot of reproductive aged women and as it turns out, a lot of neurological things are affected by woman parts and hormones floating around in the menstrual cycle. And so, and a lot of the medications that I'm giving are not safe in pregnancy or in breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And so I end up spending a lot more time than I ever anticipated talking about periods and contraception and menopause and hormone replacement therapy, because all of that ends up influencing the neurologic things that I'm treating. And so when you're discussing with these patients, do you do you talk to them about you know, contraceptive methods and hormonal birth control? Absolutely. I'm very glad that I'm a woman and I've had a lot of uh, personal experience with the different contraceptive methods and going through the pregnancy and birth process and all that, because I, I get I get pretty in depth with with people about um, making sure that they're using contraception if they're not using contraception, asking whether they're at risk of getting pregnant, as it were, um, you know, what methods they're using and how effective they actually are, depending on how bad of a medication regimen they're on or talking with the women who have migraine with aura about being on estrogen containing OCPs or the um, older women who are on hormone replacement therapy talking about risks of stroke and dementia versus balancing quality of life issues. So yeah, I, I go, I go quite in depth. So I think to the, to the question, what do you wish you learned or remembered from your OBGYN rotation as a medical student? Um, Sounds like the menstrual cycle physiology is high on that list, or are there others? Definitely, definitely that part. And I, I really wish that I had paid more attention to hormone replacement therapy counseling, because um, I, I am certainly running across that again, more than I thought I was going to be, and having a lot of talks with, with older women about that, um, where they're saying that my my guy is telling me that I have to get off of it, but I just feel so terrible when I'm off it that I don't care. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we end up going into that stuff a lot. So I wish I wish I'd paid more attention to that. I think I, I approached the third year of medical school kind of knowing what I wanted to do in a really obnoxious fashion of when I did the other rotation, <laughs> being like, well, I don't need to know about this stuff because I'm going to be a neurologist. Uh, but smack myself up the back of the head and say, as it turns out, you do kind of need to know this stuff. People are going to expect you to know about this stuff, even if it's not in your area of specialty. Uh, and so I, I would really commit to paying more attention to, to all of that stuff that was going to, in the future, affect how I'm providing care to people. You heard it here from Dr. Everett. <laughs> Pay attention to <laughs> menstrual physiology, hormone replacement therapy, because your patients will be on these drugs and they'll be asking you all the questions about it. Right. Um, so another thing that we have been talking about, um, and particularly with everyone, um, which just to preface, this is uh, a couple of weeks after the unfortunate death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, a few weeks before the presidential election and um, a few hours after the vice presidential debate. Um, I just wanted to ask you what you think our, our priorities are, what the biggest priority are, is for reproductive health as we go into 2021. Uh, I struggle with this question because, boy, we are getting it from every direction right now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> it. 
I, uh, <laughs> I think it's kind of twofold. I think I really worry about women having easy access to effective and cheap contraceptive methods because we know what happens when, when women get pregnant and don't want to be pregnant, which is not good things a lot of the time. Uh, and we are not moving in the right direction that way with taking away the insurance mandate to cover birth control. And, you know, I definitely see women who say, oh, I would love to get an IUD, but I'd have to pay $800. And even that's like, that's with insurance coverage, I'd have to pay that and I can't afford it. And I'm like, boy, that's really unfortunate because that's the best method of not getting pregnant. And, and yet here we are. Right. Awesome. Right. Uh, and then, of course, at the other the other end is is abortion. We are we are. I've been in Missouri for quite a number of years now, and I have watched slowly the the rights erode and erode and erode. And I know that there are many states that have zero or one abortion providers, and and it's just deeply upsetting and unfortunate that that's the direction we're going in. We women need to have access to safe, useful abortion services that are within, you know, at least a couple of hour drive of them uh, without having to wait many days or a week to actually get it done. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of different ways for us women. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, what do you, do you find yourself um, advocating for the, you know, for your patients in some way, for their rights to have choices? Do you find that kind of crossing over? Because one of the themes that we keep that I keep noticing, and I, of course, in my specialty is, you know, setting expectations and allowing people the ability to choose things for them, basically. How do you find yourself advocating for your patients in that space? So I do end up getting into a lot of discussions with with young women who are um, sexually active, but not using contraceptive methods who give me the, well, I'm not trying to have a baby. And then I have to, to yeah. really give them the, the firm no, no, you, you, in fact, are trying to have a baby because if you're having sex and not using contraception, that's how one makes babies. Uh, and, and, and so, and that's going to affect how I'm going to treat you because I'm certainly not going to prescribe Topamax to you, um, while you are at high risk of becoming pregnant. Uh, and so I, I definitely, I do work with them to, to try to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing as far as their reproductive state. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Elise Everett, thanks for taking the time. As always, thank you to my co-host, Corey French. Um, we'll see you on the next episode.